Himalayas Studios. My introduction to Sarah Marshall wasn't through her podcasts; it was through her writing, specifically a piece she wrote for BuzzFeed News called "The Incredible True Story of How Titanic Got Made." And we're not talking about the doomed ship here; we're talking about the James Cameron movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. You know, this one. What I've realized is that the article is a perfect encapsulation of Sarah's expertise, deep diving into the complicated and messy backstory of an iconic person or moment, and unearthing the elemental and overlooked details. Suddenly, I could talk about Amy Fisher, and I could talk about Lorena Bobbitt, and I could talk about all these stories where these were unpicturable stories when I was a freelance writer because I was talking about facts that. Were on the record and were known, and I wasn't introducing new information. And all I was doing was just sort of like wrapping people on the knuckles and being like, "Be nicer." <laughs> That's where Sarah shines, and part of what makes her podcast "You're Wrong About," which she hosts with the journalist Michael Hobbs, so damn good. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, revisiting history with Sarah Marshall. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day to day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood, and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at laist.com/events. Sarah. How did your wrong about get started? Yeah, so well, that one came about because Mike and I knew each other somewhat. Me and Michael Hobbs, my co-host, and he had reached out to me when he started working at the Huffington Post to suggest that I pitch something to them, which just I never had the right idea for it. Hmm. And I liked him, and I liked his work, and I liked that he had uh, asked me to pitch something, and then. He got this idea to start a podcast. Originally, I think the title was supposed to be "I Misremember the '90s." <laughs> When we were initially talking about it, I was like, "Cool, but can we just do any point in history? Because I want to do a Leopold and Loeb episode, which I still haven't done." <laughs> um, and he was like, "Okay, sure." And so basically, we got together kind of an initial batch of episodes that we were pretty happy with, and then we started releasing them in May of 2018, and. Just kind of have kept going, and then ramped up to our current、uh, state of production in pandemic times. Because in it, very, very hilariously, a year ago, last March, we were like, 
our country is going through something and people are going to be bored because they're stuck in their houses. So we should release an episode a week until life is back to normal. Ha 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 ha. And we're still, still doing it. And it's still, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, I'm sure that a lot of people like started resolutions at the beginning of this and, and this one was ours. Well, so the concept of you're wrong about is really similar to your written work. I do think that You're Wrong About is a show that I like doing so much, partly because it is it is drawing on what my work was trying to do for a long time before I found out as an outlet, which is to just, you know, not necessarily have bombshell new information or even new reporting or or anything and just to kind of take people to the past and, I mean, essentially do history. Hmm. I think that, yeah, what generally what I'm most interested in is just trying to take people on a little time travel trip and sort of form some kind of intimacy with with some kind of person, some kind of figure in a historical narrative that makes it more complicated. Hmm. And to complicate it, you know, maybe because there's new information you can bring to light or because I can do some analysis that is smart. But mainly, I think, once you feel the people in the stories you tell to be real people, yeah. uh, things become different. And I think that's the key thing for me. Were you um, in sort of history departments in, in your academic life? What was what was your uh, degree in? I was in uh, literature departments, and so I got a hmm. master's degree. And that was where I got really into the stories of Puritan women and sort of Puritan writings and these... <laughs> Wait, was that what your master's that thesis was? That was, what did I write? My, my thesis was actually on Jane Eyre. It wasn't a great thesis. But I I did, I remember when The Witch came out, I was like, this is a great movie. The Eddie Taylor-Joy yes, movie. Yes, I was like, this is a great movie. And what <laughs> yeah. I, I think that not enough people realize is that this is also like a fairly straightforward adaptation of the kind of things that Puritans were writing down pretty consistently in that time. Like this was the world that people felt themselves to be living in. And, and a lot of them still do. Do you remember what was one of your stronger sort of historical attachments when when um, hmm. when you were in that stretch of your life? Aside from Jane Eyre, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did get really into Marie Antoinette. Hmm. You know, you do a certain amount of early American founding fathers reading. And I remember thinking that, you know, Comparing the French and American revolutions was like kind of my way to find an excuse to writing about those things. But that was a, a period of study that I think in retrospect was kind of me learning how to go in and form my own attachment with a historical figure and then communicate that. So how, how do you do that, actually? Um, how do you like know if you formed that attachment? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you have to just trust your gut, which is weird because we're talking about people, if you're talking about someone in Marie Antoinette's period, then it's someone who can't possibly tap you on the shoulder and be like, no, I wasn't like that. <laughs> um, but yeah. there's something that happens when I think you spend a certain amount of time reading someone's writings, especially their actual words, where you do get the sense of just having a sense of the character of the person. And this, I think in the same way that people feel like they know Instagram influencers, like the good ones are yeah. offering some authentic experience of themselves. And I think that's why the word authenticity kind of does still mean something. And uh, I mean, in Marie Antoinette's yeah. case, there's 
something I find interesting about her. She did have this very soft heart for like what was in front of her, like her carriage accidentally ran over a peasant boy and she was like, oh my goodness, we must take care of you and pay for your education and and I will try to adopt you. And that actually won't work, but <laughs> I will I will provide for you financially after I give you back to your family. And to me, it makes me feel like I have a sense of like, okay, this is a person who wasn't thinking very hard about policy because she didn't know how to do that and no one expected it of her, but who in the moment, yeah. in situations, in her sphere of influence, had this gentle and impractical approach to the people she encountered. But, you know, she was able to to throw some of her magical princess dust um, around a little bit. <laughs> You're Wrong About doesn't just cover historical figures, though. It also examines trends and conspiracy theories like, what was Y2K all about? Or exorcisms. Were they ever a real thing? There's this demand for exorcists. And if you go to your archdiocese, they'll be like, no, like, we don't do that. Like, we're the Catholic Church. We're respectable. Like, demonic affliction and possession is very rare. Like, it's probably not that. But what you can do instead is find, like, a renegade priest who will kind of under the table do an exorcism for you. So it's like getting an abortion. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. So it's like little entrepreneurs that are sort of making this their business model due to the demand. Sarah and her co-host Michael Hobbs also tackle multi-part series, digging into the stories of maligned women like Tanya Harding and Princess Diana. But their deepest dive? I didn't know who O.J. Simpson was, or I I had heard nothing of this, but I knew it was a huge deal, because I remember we watched it for, like, uh, Hmm. that evening. Yeah, and what do you remember seeing? Like, what did it look like? It's just this very boring footage of a car driving down the road with, like, this squadron of police cars behind it that in my memory are in like a flying V, but I think they're probably not in real life. It's funny that it's called a chase because I don't know if it ever technically was. It's like right. they're following him. It's like a moving negotiation more than a real chase because yes. he's not like speeding down streets trying to shake them. It's a moving standoff. Right. I really loved doing those episodes. Yeah, I think I think my favorite process and it's maybe easy to say it because we're still in it. it, has been the O.J. Simpson series because that has been, you know, to me, this excuse to spend a lot of time with the side characters in it. Yeah, and we're about to do an episode where we get to introduce F. Lee Bailey, and so we get to talk about all of his weird cases. And <laughs> I have this dream that it'll be a hundred parts long like that. Maybe that won't, maybe that's too many, but it's, uh, yeah, and to me, that's like, I like I think you can just consume it just as podcast episodes and if those are sufficiently entertaining then that's then it's done its job but also I kind of like the idea that it's this intentionally annoying concept art on the theme of like it's impossible to tell a news story honestly you know <laughs> So you and Michael cover a lot of um really heavy topics and I wonder is it taxing to make these episodes more frequently Because you're developing these emotional attachments and expressing compassion and empathy towards people who've been, you know, wrong or harmed in tremendous ways. Or you're potentially talking about people who have harmed others in significant ways, and you have to try and find your way through that. And um, yeah, I mean, I think another thing that I really like about doing this show is that, you know, 
we're independent. We're not working for a network. We don't have a requirement to do X number of episodes per year. We're very lucky in that respect. And what that also means is that, you know, if the timing gets to be too strenuous or if I'm, you know, working on a story and if I'm really not finding my way in and I don't want to try and put something out that I'm not happy with or if I need to back away and and take time off of it, then I can. And I think something that 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 freedom has allowed me to do is figure out how can I approach these stories in ways that are sustainable. And I think one of them is with this, you know, this very long, very long running OJ Simpson series that we have that is from the beginning has leapt around between points of view. And that's just something that I thought would be effective for the listener, partly because it works for me and partly because I think it also keeps it less overwhelming that we have, you know, we'll have an episode or two dedicated to a person's point of view and we can sort of sit with them and focus on that person for a while and then we can jump to the next person. And I feel like, I don't know, to me it's what's most overwhelming is having to process a lot of information either intellectually or emotionally, and it's always both, and to try and just do whatever it is that you do when you take a lot of information in and feel that you have assimilated it and are comfortable expressing it to people. I think, to me, what's hardest Mm -hmm. is feeling like I have to do that in a shorter time than I can really do that. I don't know, to me, being able to set my own calendar and my own time frame is probably the single most significant aspect of that. So after years of doing so much research and work, um, do you feel like you have a better understanding of how these concepts or people or ideas become, you know, essentially viral topics? I think one thing that's become clear is the basic structure of the moral panic, because we've done so many episodes on some kind of moral panic or another. Yeah. Like at this point, kind of going in, it's possible to guess and be at least somewhat right about how this plot is going to unfold. And an example of something more recently that happened that was, you know, very much in line with the satanic panic research that I've been doing is when we had these fake statistics going around that American children are like 666 or 66.666 times percent more likely to be abducted by human traffickers than to get COVID. And it's like, no, they're they're much more likely to get COVID. But the argument was that <laughs> putting children in face masks was a ploy by human traffickers to try and, you know, be able to more easily snatch your children. And, and mm. you know, there was the Wayfair <laughs> story and there were quite a few threads last summer that were all about, you know, the human traffickers want to get your children rhetoric that we've seen grow partly in connection with QAnon on the right and and just sort of splash out and take over. And I think looking at, at other moral panics and other contexts, it was easy for me to say, like, it seems like this might have something to do with the fact that we are living in a country whose government is full with people who, if they don't want us to die, are at least indifferent to our deaths. And mm. if that's the situation, you do have to invent a scarier villain to focus on so that you can then think less about the troubling realities that you're living under. Or at least this is what yeah. I think tends to happen. 
So moral panics are connected to conspiracy theories are connected to satanic panic is connected to not wanting to deal with your problems. Yeah, really. they're all they're all friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, how Sarah's love of Murphy Brown shaped her career. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Sarah, to what extent do you think celebrity factors into the things you like to think about? Hmm. Yeah, I I think it is pretty key. And I I wonder why. I mean, I feel like as a kid, I watched so much TV that when I (laughs) got into grad school, I heard, you know, people would speak disparagingly of TV as a concept. And I was like, no, TV is very important. (laughs) TV is where, you know, we learn who we are if, you know, if our parents are too busy to tell us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if they're there, it's, <laughs> even it's still that, even yeah. The, yeah, and then it, it yeah. tells us, you know, how to fit in, how to be an American. Like, as an only child, I remember watching Growing Pains and feeling like, you know, this is what the goal, what the other families are doing. They have, like, family meetings in this weird tuba that they never use by the stairs. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think, I mean, maybe especially now it's become apparent to me in a way that can't be denied really by the majority of the way that maybe it has been that like, we are a nation who has, we just had a reality star president and it wasn't even Tyra Banks, you know? And, <laughs> and so I feel like we're past the point of, of uh, being able to deny how important what we see on TV is to us. And also the fact that like, if you see it on TV, like it feels real, it feels like a fact. And I think the era of TV is over. Like I think the era of screens is, is here, but Mm. TV, like at a certain point stopped being this thing that you turn it on and it happens to you. And I also feel like my little bit of personal history is the last couple decades of the time when you turned on TV and it happened to you and it told you who was good and who was bad. And it was very hard to find people who disagreed with that potentially. But now I think we have wilder claims that people are making and people are believing through media, but we also have you know, more ability 
to say different kinds of things and to to dissent. And also people who have been raised on media can be pretty savvy. I'm, I'm curious, what were the most formative television shows for you growing up? Ooh, wow. Well, honestly, I think Mystery Science Theater 3000, because I think you can really see the influence of that. <laughs> <laughs> Kids in the Hall was also big. Like when I look back on what was my lifeblood as a kid, it was definitely mostly comedy. Um, I just hmm. watched whatever was on too. And I think like watching a like a lot of TV land sitcoms meant that I ended up, my brain became this like dryer lint trap for like everything that had happened, <laughs> you know, in TV news from yeah. the 70s through the 90s. Because if you watch a fair amount of Murphy Brown, which I did when I was in high school, then you're just like, what's this about Barbara Bush's speech at Wellesley? I have to learn what this is now. <laughs> so even then you had like a relationship to the past. like Yeah. Uh, right through these older sitcoms. It's yeah, like. there's something about, I don't know, there's something about growing up on reruns that just gives you a sense of ownership over a time when you weren't there. Like I, at a certain point, watched enough Three's Company to be like, don't, mansplain the 70s to me. I was living in an apartment with Jack and Chrissy and no one trusted me. <laughs> so uh, you've also started doing another podcast, uh, Why Are Dads? Yeah, that one started because my friend Alex Steed and I, we've been trying to get different podcast projects off the ground for a few years and just like nothing was ever quite right. It never, you know, the timing wasn't right. Then last spring, we started, we were like, okay, let's do a podcast. We have something to, you know, enjoy. <laughs> and we originally had, the idea was to call it Apocalypse Friends, and every episode <laughs> is a, an apocalypse movie with, like, pretty broad, you know, framework for that. So A League of Their Own was one of the ones we recorded on because that's, like, the apocalypse of World War II and baseball disappearing. And we did a few of those, and it was really fun, but it was also like, we can't release these. It's too depressing. Like, we did our first one was on <laughs> Dawn of the Dead, and it's like, so it was like two on the nose. And then we went, and we were like, let's do the same concept, but every week we're talking about a movie that has dads as a theme, basically, fatherhood and also masculinity, which is like probably more on the nose for where we ended up in this country, talking about, you know, masculinity and what a hell of a drug it can be, essentially. <laughs> but we got there through the apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, it feels like the connective tissue is this sort of like you have a thing that you're working against and you're kind of like grappling it and, and sort of untangling it in a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it does it does it sort of like feed you in the same way that um, that your other work does or, or does it sort of hit another register for you? Yeah, I think it hits similar things. And also, it, like, that's a show that, I enjoy doing for the reason that, like, I don't feel like I need to show up and be on point for how I deliver a story, which I have to do at least part of the time on You're Wrong About. Like, that's a show where I feel like my job is to show up and be emotionally open, basically. Hmm. And the sort of culture that we've created there is, like... You know, when we have guests on and sort of go with their comfort level, but, you know, and Alex and I have known each other for like a decade. And so there's that trust too, where like, if he asks me like, what did this thing make you think about this painful thing? And like, without thinking, I 
you know, I have to, or I like to be in the state where I can just be like, well, it felt like this. Then I'm like, why am I saying that on a show? It's fine, whatever, <laughs> I'm already talking. Let's just finish this sentence. <laughs> so uh, aside from these podcasts, um, you, you've also been working on a book. What are you feeling more right now? Yeah, I was just reflecting on this because I was talking to Alex this morning about we we're working on another project and he was like, can you give me like a couple of paragraphs on this and I was like, can I speak them to you? And he was like, yeah, just whatever. <laughs> and so I like recorded a voice memo and sent it. And it was just, and a few years ago, I would never have done that. I would have sat down and I would have written, you know, a couple paragraph email and sent it. And I would have done that not just because I hadn't yet had the opportunity to slightly burn myself out on the act of writing, which I think kind of happened, but also because. I was still working up to this comfort level in speaking where I, you know, partly also as a consequence of growing up as a lonely child, like I have not tended to be the most socially comfortable person historically. And I mm. think really leaving academia was when my life sort of migrated out of, you know, you exist in the day and in your body, but you really exist when you're writing something or when you're yeah. creating a piece of work that will then go out into the world in your stead and sort of do whatever the best part of your brain can do in the world and you let it loose and it goes out and does that. And so I feel like it's been really interesting the past few years to suddenly feel most comfortable and most articulate speaking. So now that you're comfortable speaking more, um, has that changed things for you? Yeah, well, I think that writing used to be a place that I would, or an, an act or whatever, um, but it was something that I would go to because I didn't feel comfortable with the idea that like I would be or could be heard uh, just in interactions with people trying to explain or express myself uh, in the moment. Like I would really tend to get tongue-tied and retreat very easily into like awkwardness and shame. And I think that part of, you know, my obsession with subjects like Tanya Harding over the years has also been part of feeling some kind of empathy or some kind of sense of connection to people who have been in the public in a way where they have also not had the chance or the ability to adequately defend themselves. And so mm. initially mm. the way I knew how to do that was by coming in and offering my writer self to that. And that was where the best, where I thought of as just the best of me was really. I'm thinking lately about, and this is kind of a why our dads thing, how kind of my, one of the things that I find most distressing if I'm kind of in a conversation or a dispute with someone is if I feel taken back to a time in childhood where like I'm trying to make my case to an authority figure, probably my dad, mm. and they're just not hearing me. And they're like, okay, well, anyway, we're just going to keep going and we're going to do my thing because I don't understand what you're saying. And I'm not going to take the time to try and figure it out. Or I assume that it's just, if you can't make this idea real to me by communicating mm. it to me in a way that feels believable to me, then we're just going to move forward. And uh, writing was a way of just avoiding that feeling by not ever being in a situation where it could come up. So 
I found a way to do what I love, but not be all by myself most of the time, which I really yeah. think is great. <laughs> I just want to say that that feeling of like um, not being able to explain and defend yourself, uh, that, that feels so true to me. Uh, uh, it feels like it explains like 95% of both my interactions and the world around us. <laughs> <laughs> that there's this a, like a, a concentrated pool of really powerful people who's just not listening to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just the feeling, the feeling of having no standing, you know, and I think there was a period, yeah. it was a pretty brief period, but there was a time kind of post-academia and pre-podcasting where I was like, lawyering, that's what I'm going to do. And I can see now that like, <laughs> I was, you know, that was like, I was 60% there, but like, I could never have survived law school. I would have hated it so much. Like I would have, if I had to push myself through on sheer willpower, I probably, I Probably, maybe, <laughs> could have done it, but oh my God. Um, and just, you know, I think of just the emotional work, like the aspects of you and your heart and your brain that it involves are parts of me that have tended to be very delicate. <laughs> and so, so that wasn't the right thing. But I feel as if that was this middle step where I was like, I want to not speak for people, but basically speak in a way that creates a space for listeners, readers, whoever, to come in and be like, I'm going to just sort of sit quietly with the idea of this person and maybe something will happen to me and I will feel differently. And I think, mm. yeah, there, there was uh, something about the idea of speaking for someone to other people in a more direct way that maybe that was what I was seeing in the act <laughs> of being a lawyer that that was what I think maybe interested me most, the part where you're doing a tiny podcast to a judge. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is really great. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantapod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, James Trout, and John Prati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. If there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.